Hello, hello. Welcome to The Sit Down, brought to you by the Chicago Reader. I'm your host, Shawnee Dez, and today we are sitting down with the Justice Cornelius Pugh, Chicago-born and based incredible writer, thinker, organizer, a leader. Um, I'm really excited to get into this thought-provoking conversation, and we're going to start it off with him introducing himself to you all. Hey, Shawnee. <laughs> I... Uh... Man, isn't that the question of a of a of an artist? What are you? Who are you? Uh, I think by day, I am a facilitator, an organizer, and a storyteller. Um, when I'm, you know, in my full artist and an Afro transcendental mode, and by night, uh, I'm a tech designer as well as a ecosystem builder and entrepreneur. Wow, we just sort of talked about this. I think being born and based in Chicago, you kind of can't really just do one thing. Mm-mm. It's a place where all the parts of you are poured into. I think people see you as your whole self here. Um, so that's incredible. I mean, it's normal for us. It's like, oh, we do this, we do that, we do that. Um, but I am excited to talk to you a bit more about how all these things sort of interplay with each other, how they connect. Obviously, you are the connector of those things. But a little bit more um, practically, I wonder how they're all connected. So before we get started, um, I think Justice is going to give us a treat and read the piece that he actually Mm. had featured in the Poetry Corner. And a bit more about the Poetry Corner, it is um, a section of the, the Reader, the Chicago Reader newspaper. It's a section sponsored by the Poetry Foundation. And in this section... I'm tasked with asking folks to come on as a curator and uh, the curator usually will uh, organize or curate about six to seven pieces for every issue. So for about three months at a time. So Justice was the curator that I reached out to because he's incredible and he has a really robust community of writers. So that's what the Poetry Corner is. Be sure to check it out. Um, But let's get into this piece. Go ahead and uh, put your poetry voice on. Thank you. you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I do want to say before I read this piece uh, is a bit about process. Um, I think in today's world, in today's times, now more than ever, I'm thinking a lot about how is my work uh, advancing or uh, aligning with liberation and a really important part of my practice and my process is free writing um, and making sure that the things that I'm writing are pure and of the thought, of the heart, of the mind. And um, a lot of the pieces that I write, the pieces that I share are usually like the first drafts um, and like in honoring that and like avoiding the perfectionist, perfectionist, avoiding wanting to polish things up, avoiding like you know, really capturing what these dreams or what these visions or what these memories are and sharing them authentically and getting comfortable with doing that uh, is a big part of that. So it was really an honor to be able to do that on uh, for the Poetry Corner and do that with the reader uh, and for you to, you know, for you to honor that. So thank you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So this piece is Ancestors' Wildest Dreams, uh, which, you know, also feels like one of the most... Uh, um, one of the starting points to how I figured out who I am and what my purpose is as a writer. 
The warmth of other suns is teaching me just how warm the sun's rays can get when washing over me with light. Just how green the grass is on the only lawn I have ever known. How blue the sky is only because my ancestors afforded me a life where I can look farther and farther and farther into it every day and every day my wings grow. Each feather a lesson, a blessing, and I jump off the grass of the lawn that they grew from infertile dirt, its green turf and sprinkle of dandelions catapulting me into the blue of the sky, open, wide, safe, in their everlasting protection. Flying higher and higher, feeling my skin shine under the warmth of a sun nowhere near as hot as what my ancestors felt when they were living under its gaze, working tirelessly, and as I get closer and closer and closer to it, higher, and higher and higher in the sky, farther and farther and farther from the ground, they tell me to keep going, to fly higher. For these wings are anointed and there's no way they'll let me fall. Ancestors Wildest Dreams. I say that is such a beautiful and mindful piece. You sort of touched on process, but I want to know more about what even led you to write that piece? Yeah, like what is it talking about for you? I think as a black person, I, you know, I can speculate and I'm sure I'm correct in my speculation, but I want you to sort of name that and and really define what this piece is about. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean a lot a lot is in the title, Ancestors Wildest Dreams. Uh in this time um you know, I think a lot about how do we like really connect to ancestors and how do we really connect to God, God as external, as internal, and what are the versions of God that like our ancestors connect to as well. Um, but yeah, when I think of Ancestors Wildest Dreams, uh, I really got deep into my like ancestral and my writing practice when um, I was having a lot of like discomfort with how frivolously our Ancestors Wildest Dreams was getting used. And um, they wouldn't put the phrase down. Stop putting it on T-shirts. Putting it on T-shirts, one, and then selling them T-shirts. Like, if you're going to put that on T-shirt, give it out. Because that's what they dreamed of, right? Like, everybody get a T-shirt. Or, you know, and it's funny you talk about Chicago and how, you know, as Chicago wins, as Chicago artists, everybody does multiple things. I I went to school on the East Coast, came back to Chicago for that very reason. I was like, I don't want to have to pick and choose, like, pick a side of my identity and, like, go deep into it and admonish the others I really wanted to be full and holy justice and um so I say that to say when I was on the east coast I was seeing you know and everybody has their different path everybody have their, has their different purpose their different journey but was seeing people in front of like large corporations on their first day of 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 you know that corporate job um at that at that tech company or at that you know consumer goods factory um like I'm my ancestors wildest dreams like in front of a corporation um or you know even even and sometimes like you know I think it was a lot around like consumerism when I would see it in front of a new car or um yeah just in in some moments that I just felt out of alignment with and then sometimes I would see it like very like thoughtfully used um and then I would also interrogate like when it was said to me what would I be doing you know was it said to me when I was like outside stretching hanging out and reading or was it said to me when I was like accomplishing things or uh producing things or 
you know, having like the, the most like visible accolades. Um, so yeah, a, a big part of my, my journey is like, what are our ancestors' wildest dreams for real? And I think that they dreamed of flight. I think they dreamed of magic. I think they dreamed of, you know, crazy Afro futures. Uh, and I also think they dreamed to dream and dreamed of rest and dreamed of, you know, some of the crazy memories and some of the things that I'm able to do on the day to day. Uh, so a big driver of my work is really interrogating what is a dream? Um, what does that dream hold? And how can I have a practice of dreaming that allows me to connect more to my ancestors? Because my, my biggest belief uh, in the belief system that, you know, I'm working on and expanding is rooted in the idea that our imagination is our ancestors' wildest dreams inherited. Uh, therefore, we have a responsibility to dream as abundantly as possible. Uh, and we also have a dream to, to write our dreams down, um, to honor, you know what I'm saying, the access to them, honor the ability to rest. And yeah, yeah, dreams hold a lot. They do. And I smiled so hard because as you were saying, imagination, that was what I was going, that, that was where I was going. Because also I think about writing as a practice as this sort of tangible it feels like this grounded tangible form of like holding what is in our imagination so a lot of times you'll hear people say oh if you had a dream get up and write it down or if you have an idea get up write it down if you have a plan get up write it down and I was actually just listening I think to something with Erica Badu talking about the number two pencil and how the like lead in the pencil has some sort of crystal it's it's related to a crystal so it's like that's the most powerful thing to write with because it is literally manifesting the thing as you're writing it because of whatever is in the pencil that that shakes me up i'll be writing with pens i love an inky pen i love a pencil ah I don't i'm a pencil touching. writer I, I don't i think i don't touch pencils because i don't like the concept of erasers which is also big with my drafts like if I don't like that word, I want to cross it out, but I want to remember that it's there. Uh, but now you're talking about the manifestation power of the of the crystal lead. I'm like, hold on. I think, too, there's something about the malleableness or the ability to change things that I feel like I personally align with as someone who can be really indecisive but want to hold space for both like the both and that I'm experiencing. So I want to hold space for all the things that are coming through. And sometimes that means that I'm prioritizing them down on the paper in a way that's like, okay, this is a thought that I have, but I'm going to erase it and I'm going to write it a little bit closer to the bottom of the page or I'm going to write it in this corner. And I like to sort of like mind map in that way where I'm writing ideas in different corners of the paper. So I think it, I'm not afraid of the eraser. I think that it, you know, yeah, I think it serves a purpose in a way that's like it's not you never get a super clean erase like you not deleting the word for real. You know what I mean? Like you're just you just making space for a more important word, I guess. So creating a void. Um, so with that, you in terms of your process, you write with pen. Do you ever do voice memos or like, yeah, tell me, let's let's walk through a little bit more of your of your process and, and how you how you get these ideas out of your brain? Oftentimes, I think two, two different things happen that lead to me getting into my writing mode. One is a lot of practice around like putting the pen to the page and not picking it up. 
Um, so I'm a really big fan of uh, Morning Pages, which is a uh, part of the artist way. Everybody's read like, you know, that first chapter and then they have these grand epiphanies and then put that joint down. Yeah, no, everybody, <laughs> everybody be like, yo, this is the book of my life. And then gets into like page 25 and be like, you know, yeah, straight up. Um, and, and I honestly didn't finish that joint either. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, the, the morning pages was the piece that, that I really needed. Um, and also with my reading practice, which I'm always perpetually working on. Uh, honestly, I think that we only really be needing like, a, you know, one to three chapters of a book, uh, and, you know, receive that message and then channel it how, how it sees fit. But artists, authors know you got to start off with the banger. Anyway, um, yeah, I really love Morning Pages because, uh, and for those that are unfamiliar, The Artist's Way, I don't remember the author, shame on me, and it's like the 25th anniversary of the book, and she had already like had a very long writing career when the book came out, which made her an expert in the subject matter, so it's, a, it's an OG book, it's a legendary book, and uh, in it, there's this thing called Morning Pages where you write as soon as you wake up or as, as close to waking up as you can, and you write three pages nonstop. And you just get all of your thoughts out, anything on your mind, anything on your spirit. Uh, you just like translate all to the page and you can't pick up your pen until you hit three pages. And at the end of that process, literally everything that you're thinking about, excited about, worried about, on your heart, in your surroundings, ends up on the page. And like you can really get to a clear mind. Uh, and I really embody that in a lot of my work. And I used to do it just for a page. I'm like, let me just get some, some thoughts out. And I'd look up and it'd be a poem or it'd be a reflection or it'd be a meditation uh, and really like deepening in that to, you know, three pages. Sometimes I look up and I've written five or six and then I go back in and there's a little nugget in there that, you know, was an insight that I needed, you know, to boost me up. Or I go back in and I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. That was a poem. And then I may pluck that out and expand on it. Or I may just, you know, capture it and be like, okay, that's what I needed to write this for. So I think that's one big part of my practice. And then on voice memos, definitely, because uh, when I'm walking my dog or when I'm just walking uh, or when I'm doing other little things and just, like, you know, feel the freest, like when I'm, like, the most thoughtless, I'll have a thought that comes in, and I'll be like, huh. And then I'll say it out loud and be like, huh. And then I start to freestyle it, and then I'm like, hold on, I got to get this voice memo before I forget it. Um and then I'll get back and then usually I will like write some pages around that. But it's really just capturing like free thoughts that have a little rhyme or that I'm like, oh, that was that was funny or that was interesting or ooh, or a bar or a lot of bars, a lot of bars, a lot of stories too, a lot of like wacky little random things. You know, my dog will see a, you know, see a different animal and like they may have like interesting interaction. I'll be like, huh, what if they knew each other in a past life and then I'll get to get to writing about it. So just really channeling like the free inspiration that surrounds us, uh, which I think everybody has access to at all times. You are an incredible storyteller. So aside from writing poetry, I've had the pleasure of reading or hearing you read because I love hearing it in your voice. Um, a piece, I think it was the one about your grandfather or father, or it was like a son and a father. Was it about love or about watermelon? I've heard both of them, I believe, because there was one. Yeah. The one about watermelon was, it. you talked about like the place, I believe, where the watermelon was. There's two stories you're thinking about. Yes. 
There's there's seedless. It is this uh, conversation between an ancestor mm-hmm. and a descendant that's in like this Afro future where we don't have access to fruit yeah. and to vegetables. Yes, because produce. it's like getting dropped off at your door and it's yeah. like not real. It exactly. doesn't have seeds. Exactly. And then the government and the USDA is messing with some things. Yeah. And it's like, yo, we need to appreciate being able to pick our fruit yeah. because one day if we surrender that choice, we'll be down bad. Uh, and then the other story that you also maybe think about is the beat the heart skipped, which is like four different vignettes. Yes. Like yes. Kind of bloodline, but in yes. different generations and this interconnected story between the elder yes. and the ancestor, then his son's girl and then the DJ, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Both of those. Yeah. Uh, incredible stories, incredible stories that have stuck with me for different reasons. But I want to know in terms of your origin story, did you grow up around storytelling? How did you find your way to using writing as this um, very integral practice that's a part of who you are? Um, where did that come from? Where did the, the introduction for that come from? Man, I always, I feel like every year I think about when I started writing or storytelling and I'll, you know, I'll be like, oh, okay, I think it was in high school. And then a year passes. Then I'm like, ooh, actually, it was that moment in eighth grade. And then some time passes. And I was like, ooh, when I was three years old. Um, and I think, you know, again, talking about ancestry, talking around descendants, talking about how like life goes and the cycles and circles, like, you know, all this started before I was even a being on this planet. But uh, I think the the clearest through line, I grew up a theater kid. Um, also some very Chicago, some very Chicago stuff. Uh, I didn't know that, but yeah, I love that. that. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, I was at, I was at ETA doing theater camp, South Shore Cultural Center. Wow. Um, Columbia Summer Arts Camp. Shout out to Columbia. That oh, was wow. such a great I went time. To Columbia. Yeah. For, oh yeah. You went to Columbia. Yeah. You should have been a camp counselor. You would have met you a little justice. We was in there writing plays and then performing them. We had an art gallery at the end of it. Uh, we were making films. It was really dope. Um, I did theater. I did theater and speech fair in elementary school. Speech fair was really big wow. at, at my school, Leonard on 80 Person LaSalle. Shout out to the Lions. Yeah, I really I always loved being on the stage. Wow. Um and I was just I was just writing and reflecting on this like I've always loved to act and I also really needed the stories to be true. Um and I think growing up, you know, theater was always cool, but my most fulfilling experiences were either when I was like, you know, remem- remembering or memorizing that uh, Langston Hughes poem and then performing it for speech fair. The Waldorf Astoria was my joint. Um, Which one is that? Welcome to the Waldorf Astoria. Um, uh, uh, a la carte, you need some food. It was like a, it was like this kind of like welcome. <laughs> okay, because I'm thinking of Hey Blake. <laughs> hey, oh, who is that? Uh, wow, but we know the poem. Hey, black child, do you know who you are? Who you really are? I don't know. I just Ooh. know that. It was so that that one was a popular one at speech fairs. The other one was um um I am a woman. Yes. That was super popular. Um, yes, that that's Maya. Yeah. That's yeah. Maya. Speech fair was rocking. Speech fair was rocking. We switched every year. Um, you know, spelling bee was cool. I got I got some beef with my young spelling bee, but speech fair was the one. Uh, and yeah, all, all that to say, um, I love like using my voice um, and activating and then also like connecting to like the voices of like ancestors and those that came before me, whether it is my granddaddy, you know, in the story that I wrote 
or whether it is a piece that's like, you know, after I've read the first chapter of, um, of Asada's autobiography, Asada Shakur's autobiography, I wrote one of my favorite pieces, kind of like channeling the thought and the anger that I got from her from like reading the intro to that book, which is one of the craziest literary intros to a book you can ever possibly read. Um, and then, yeah, and then like when I did get the opportunities to like be in plays and like embody or create um, different characters, that's always been a really, uh, really important to me. And then when I went to school, I went to school for business administration and marketing. And um, I was in more positions of like presenting things and like sales and then also like entrepreneurship pitches and realized that that's storytelling as well. Um, and 100%. 100%. Oftentimes, too. You have the, to be a good world, storyteller to get people to, to invest. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, even in some in some tech spaces too, they'd be like, "Fake it till you make it," and tell them stories until you find the right funder to get to your next step. Woo woo. But yeah, the, the through line has always been storytelling. Um, and even when I was younger, before like theater camp too, like I was always trying to like sell stuff. So like the business and entrepreneur has been there too. I got the connected. I used to be going around my mom's office <laughs> selling tat, trying to sell tattoos, and I'd be the drawing little on people. Oh. No, drawing on people, <laughs> and I just had my arms. <laughs> I was like, I, I have my arms all tatted up. You and say, like, you want you, this one? I'd be like, just one dollar and I got gotcha. you. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's just something, I think the, the storytelling like tradition has always been in me uh, mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form. And it's always like come out in different ways. I used to love my mom's handwriting mm, and I wanted to yeah. write like her. So that was like putting pen to page. That was inspired by it. So that's like the writing side. You're such a water sign and I love it. I love it because when you say that you used to love your mom's handwriting, I used to love my mom's handwriting. Come on. She she had this little cursive blend. Yes. I'd be like, let me get my twos looking that loopy. Come on. <laughs> to this day, like, I'll write my signature or something, and people are like, oh, my God, your signature is so raw. And I'll be like, it's literally my mom's signature because I, like, stole it, which is terrible. So it seems like institutions sort of ignited this, like, love and passion. And I, I even this, I think, like, actualization of seeing writing or performing as like a possibility um but what I'm also curious to know is how you like how did you get to a point where you would find yourself as a young person saying like I love these things and I need them to be true like what was that like, is that something that you really felt as a young person or is that something that you developed over time through the practice of doing and writing and being a poet and a writer and a thinker? Is that something that you found out later on? Is like, I need this to be true and this is why I've invested in it? Or did you need it to be true when you were younger? Did you know that you needed these stories to be true? Mm, I love that question. What comes to mind immediately is knowing what feels good and what doesn't which I also think is like a lifelong thing as we grow and evolve and change but as it pertains to this I had been especially being in a part of a lot of institutions and then growing up in Chicago you know there's so many parts of the south side so many parts of the north side and I was a, I was a part of all of those so I knew what uh, being genuine and authentic felt like um, and when it came with ease and then I also knew 
when I was, you know, performing. You know what I'm saying? And um, cold switching, whether that's cold switching. And I think, too, you know, cold switching on both sides of the spectrum, right? Depending on, like, how, you know, how do you want south side I am suddenly, you know, that, that Chicago, the, the Hunters is coming out that much more. And then when I'm up north at that little, you know, at that little theater rehearsal, suddenly I'm a little more, you know, I think it's, you know, and I'm still on that journey of, of knowing what feels good and what doesn't and why um, and what feels good and what doesn't really truly. And, um, you know, I realize that some of the, the best stories have been me talking to, you know, my mama after after I got home, you know, from school or from a trip or, you know, talking to the homies being like, yo, y'all won't believe what just happened. Uh, and really like enthusiastically like retelling, you know, some of my truths. And to have those experiences juxtaposed with like, you know, being, you know, I started off, my, my, my intro to the professional world was like on Wall Street in New York, super young. So knowing like what that form of like, performance looks and feels like um or being in spaces you know across the city or beyond where I haven't felt safe what that looks and feels like so I think it's always been you know knowing both but getting to a place where it's like oh no like the truth and the freedom that comes with that truth is like utmost priority when when you're growing up you know it's less of that choice because we don't know for real and know how to fill that out and know how to fill it out intuitively and quickly and act on that how do you view writing as a whole and then also what are maybe some tools to kind of bring people call people into like reigniting that practice and utilizing it for their lives I, I know for some people it's hard some people even hearing you talk about your origin story and the introduction within these institutions I think it's a lot easier when you're younger and you're introduced to these spaces and you, it's a it Aside from it, I, I think it definitely is a pri privilege, but even aside from it being a privilege, I think that time itself is a privilege, right? Time itself is a privilege. And as we grow and we evolve and we get jobs and we go to school for, you know, we go to like college or whatever, post-secondary school, time becomes a lot more of a, um, it's, it's, it's expensive. It's an expensive currency. So for people who may be strapped for time, how are they, how could they be thinking about implementing writing into their daily practice um, in a way that's accessible to them? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, immediately, you know, one thing I think about is, and I do this whenever I do workshops or like one-to-one -one writing sessions, um, it's really important that like your page is not going to look like my page. So as you open up the conversation, you know, you writing in the corners and stuff and then you erasing and then you look at my page and it is just like full. And then, but another, but also you can flip in my journal and this arrows all over the place in little circles and then you can flip the page again and I'm doodling different things or I'm drawing out symbols, you know? So I think that uh, oftentimes people think that it's like a specific way to journal or a specific way to write. And it either needs to be, you know, a thoughtful or poetic or sometimes, you know, I've had conversations where people are like, yo, I really want to journal, but every time I do, I'm, you know, it's sad. Um, so I think one, knowing that like your page doesn't have to hold anything specific. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to make sense at all. You could be a list of words that you're just thinking about. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't even need to be like 
how you're feeling or, or, you know, this, the 10 things you're grateful for, which I think, you know, gratitude journaling is, is so simple and such a like intro to journaling thing that like everybody can easily do, whether that's 10 things you're grateful for, 10 things in your space right now to get more present, um, five thoughts that you've thought in the last five days. Like there's so many different things and angles and frameworks. And another really big thing for me, some people are like, yo, I just do not have time to write. And you can do a one minute writing exercise or you can, you know, get a little, I got my little mini notebook and you can write one word on it. But if you just have a practice of just like putting pen to the page, you'll be really surprised with like what happens from that act. I don't know. There's, there's such a scarcity for time in today's world where, you know, we're ran by and running away from and finna run over capitalism. Uh, so sometimes it's like, yo, I do not have the time to like, sit and think and write because I got all these things I need to do but you know 30 minutes can hold a lot 15 minutes can hold a lot five one 30 seconds can all hold a lot uh and I think reclaiming that reclaiming like the abundance in a minute uh is really is really important and um and I hope that you know my work and some things that I'm working on now uh I hope reconnect people to their journaling practice speaking of things that you're working on I I want to um, trail the conversation into the direction of transcendentalism. Um, and I, I think I'm correct with putting the ism at the end because it seems to be a practice or a system of, of thought or things. So can you describe that and describe your relation and connection to, to that word? So transcendentalism simply is to like go beyond our present or physical reality. Um, I think that there's a lot of forms of meditation around transcendental meditation, right? So whether that looks like astral projection um, or whether that looks like, you know, dreaming. Um, and my connection to it, uh, I've always been interested in transcendentalism. I was first exposed to it in high school uh, with the story of uh, Into the Wild, uh, the story of Chris McCandless on the on the AP English, you dig? And basically the premise is... Um, this 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 guy Chris McCandless leaves his whole life behind to venture into the woods and live untethered from like any of the the laws norms and rules of society. So he out there he ends up dying, but his journey going out there and I think he was like in a van or in a campsite and was drying jerky and and just like living with the wolves and the trees in the winter. Uh, and left all his stuff behind, even though he like had this path to a successful life. And when you look deeper into transcendentalism, it is a lot of stories similar to that or like thoughts around it. And I think there's a lot of like white perspective around what it means to transcend in that way. Because um, I'm not about to go into the woods in the cold. But I also... And get snowed in and, and, and just relax. And just, and just be like, well... It's not giving that. Not at all. But... I do think that there is so much spiritually and culturally um, and just like existentially um, that black folks do and have that like is transcendent of our reality. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of really, really brilliant writers too that just talk about how like to be black is like to live in a dystopia. Um, and what does that mean? You know, to be black is like an experience other than human. Like it's all of these, these, these realms and worlds of like, ooh, like what really is like, of the of the spirit um of black folks and like how does that what does that mean for like the reality that we live in so that's always been super fascinating to me 
And it wasn't until I had, you know, one of my first real like Afro transcendental experiences uh, that I really developed a close relationship with the word and, and wanted to figure out, okay, we know what transcendentalism is like in AP English class, but what is transcendentalism uh, when tied, you know, really deeply and, um, and intentionally with like the black experience. So that's when I created Afro transcendental or, or happened upon, found, discovered Afro transcendental and Afro transcendentalism and coming to Chicago and tapping back in with my family here in, uh, in the, in and through the pandemic and really just like having that time of like, what is happening in the world, uh, I was really able to just like capture what are the moments where I feel like I'm like outside or on the edge of like what our reality is. And, um, and yeah, from there, like the research and exploration just began spiritually through ancestry, but also again with the ancestors' wildest dreams, like what is a dream and what's a wild one? Um, and how do we dig into that uh, for real? And, you know, I'll kind of wrap it up with, you know, I think Afro-Transcendental to me is also a reflection now is a reflection of my writing practice and my process where I think first, like everything starts with reflection um, and looking inward and following that. How do you just like create randomly after you like look inward in that way? Um, and I feel like oftentimes we're kind of trained to like, you know, if we do start with reflection, it's like, OK, now plan out what you're going to do next. And I'm like, nah, like reflect, but then and then just create. And then how does that let it flow and how does that feel and what felt good about it and now develop a plan to figure out how you sustain what felt good or what worked um so that's kind of my three-step process memory uh in mirrors and then like creation pure creation on crystals and then envision and imagine and continue to uh, and that's through glass and i feel like that process to remember or to reflect and to remember and then to create and to be and to express and then to envision a future and to plan and to look forward. Um, I think those are all the elements of a dream, right? Dreams are weird mixes of like memory and visions and what's happening now and what's happening subconsciously. And like, yeah, I don't know. I think there's, um, so this will wrap it up. I think that there is a lot on Afrofuturism right now that I love. I'm a big Octavia Butler fan. I'm a big Black Panther fan. I love Marvel stuff, especially uh, the blacker it gets. Um, and yeah, Afrofuturism is really like broken through in these past years because I think we're going through this kind of like transcendent evolution renaissance period right now. Yeah, and we're also connecting to our, to our history in a way that we haven't had in a long time through like now, you know, we're having this collective consciousness where we're knowing our history more intimately than we ever have before. I think, you know, as a generation, we're connecting with our ancestors and our like ancient ancestral practices more. Yeah, and like knowing, you know, knowing the history. So for me, Afro-transcendental and me like stewarding what Afro-transcendental is, is okay, we got Afrofuturism, and then we have like history, both like the real history, historical fiction, and understanding that like some things that we think are history are actually like historical fiction and propaganda. Um, and I like to think that Afro-transcendental is that space in between. Um, and of course, presence is the space in between, but also beyond that, how can we have conversation, like with the stories I was telling you about, between the versions of me that exist, you know, a hundred, a thousand years in the future, how can that be in conversation with the versions of me that lived a hundred or a thousand years ago? Mm, so there's a conversation between the past, present, and future. Something that also I just thought about as we get close to wrapping up. One of the things I'm thinking of is the way that in order to get a wide view of things, there has to be 
two practices, a practice of looking at things from outside of them. So like stepping outside of the situation, stepping outside of self and seeing how things are at play. And then there also has to be a deep engagement with intimacy. And this has been coming up in like so many conversations I've been having um, as we think about, you know, dating or as we think about um, manifesting what we what we see for ourselves or what we so deeply desire for ourselves. I think that both of those two things, so seeing things from an outside POV and then also having comfort and intimacy are crucial um, aspects of just life in general, but they seem to also be the ground setting tools of writing. I did want to touch on what's the move, um, which is a way that I feel like you've been able to actualize a lot of what you're talking about because transcendentalism or Afro-transcendentalism seems to be a lot more of a thought and a practice that is seemingly intangible but it is, it's tangible as well. But then I think about what's the move as this way of bringing all these things to life. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, what's the move is an app that my company launched in September. Uh, my company is Movement Labs Co. And we are a community-centered tech design hub. Um, so we're, we're still young, we're an early stage startup. But our goal with Movement Labs is to create a culture that's rooted in connectedness. And What's the Move is our first play in doing it. Uh, it has been, What's the Move has been a dream of mine. You know what I'm saying? And I, that's what I'm saying. Like whether it is a funny story or whether it's a poem or whether it's a business model or a concept, like all of that came through writing. Uh, and in 2019, I wrote about an app idea because I was, you know, in college and I go to other colleges to party and, and meet people and hang out. And then I wanted to get a feel for what's actually happening outside of college in D.C. So I was like, what if we had an app where we could go on there and instead of trying to, you know, hit the group chat and search around for things to do, I could just say, boom, like, here's what I'm here's the vibe I'm looking for. Here's who I'm with. Here's the time I want to go. And at the push of a button, I can get a move. And then the app is like getting all this data about like preferences and what time you want to go to things and what you're looking for. And then you're getting moves and you're easily able to just like make a move with your friend instead of wasting time. So I had this idea, pitched it, worked on it, pandemic hit. Hmm. Okay. How do we need this now when we need to be reconnected after the pandemic? And then summer of 2020 hit and it was like, whoa, like. I'm not just, you know, this this idea, this concept that I'm running with, I, it's just not supposed to be like, hey, let's just party and find moves and find things to do. Like, people are saying we need to support black communities and, like, we need to buy black, so how can this be something that sustains it? And that's when we start to think about, you know, adding on these layers of, like, a reward system where you participate with black-owned businesses and then you get points for giving them data and then they can grow. And time passed and, you know, a team around this idea started to grow and form, and now we're in a place where we just launched the What's the Move app, like I was saying. What's the Move connects people to their local communities through local brands, black-owned businesses, community orgs, and social groups, and then gives those entities data, analytics, and marketing tools that are less about, you know, foot traffic, clicks, and eyeballs, and more about, hey, your community said that you should do this, and that would make them happy, and that would show them some love, whether that looks like extending your hours later to be more accommodating, whether it looks like adding that menu item, or whether it looks like you know being more inclusive or being mindful of some things that your community, your regulars, your loyal customers, our patrons or supporters may need. So mm. we launched What's the Move 
And uh, once we launched What's the Move, we realized, hold on, there's actually like, you know, What's the Move is the app. Um, but when we brought our community to like celebrate the fact that we were launching What's the Move, we realized our community isn't just people looking for things to do. Our community are the people that are making those things happen. Um, yeah, they are the they are the brands, the entrepreneurs, the designers, the artists. So we're going through a really interesting time now where at, as Movement Labs Co., we're like, how are we a group of young black folks uh, from some of us from Chicago, some of us from overseas, uh, some of us from different parts of the country, how can we come together and design and develop technologies, whether that's the technologies of participation, which is like how we work and function as an organization that like, you know, is pretty radical and imaginative and visionary and wants to rebuild and repair communities. Uh, and then also, you know, how can we still push this app and like get people more connected? Because there's a lot of resources that people need and deserve access to. And there's a lot of people providing those resources. So there shouldn't be a disconnect in between them. Um, so it's really cool. It's really experimental. And I think, you know, just the essence, like I was saying, you know, we're a group of young black folks tinkering and designing technology. And we just launched an app and maybe we'll launch another one or maybe we'll do, you know, other type of business services. And we're really digging into like, what does it mean for um, folks that traditionally don't have access to data um, and to technology that's designed for them, uh, how do we open that up and how do we dig into that, which I think is a is an Afro-transcendental dream of mine. Love the way you just put the bow on that. That is incredible work, Justice, and I just want to say that it is such a gift and a pleasure having you here in Chicago. I'm happy you came home. I'm happy that you put those roots back down and and spread them out and expand it and, and put more people into the fold of um, what you're working on, as well as showing up for so many other creatives and thinkers in this city. Uh, it's it's such a it's a skill. It's a pleasure and it's a gift. Um, congratulations. What's the move? Y'all check it out on the way on the app store. Get us on the gram. WTM dot shy. A lot is coming out in 2024 across the company across Afro-Transcendental as a genre, as a canon, as a world, and, you know, inside Scoop as a creative consultancy and experience lab. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of really exciting things uh, that I'm so grateful that I have the, the uh, honor, the privilege, the freedom, uh, and the imagination to create. Justice Cornelius Pugh, y'all got it. Y'all heard it here first on the sit down. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out the Poetry Corner. Be sure to check out the reader. Um, we are so happy to have you on here and uh, cheers.